Jesus and Jeremiah, they lived about 500 years apart, yet they were remarkably consistent in the portrait their words painted about the nature of God's justice in response to sin, in God's mercy that was shown to those who turned to him, and in God's love for all people. In fact, the character of God is reliably consistent throughout the whole Bible in both large and small matters, which is no small feat considering that this is a compilation of stories written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. You would think there would be some divergence in the pictures that they paint. This morning, we're going to look at the story that Jesus told, as well as some words from Jeremiah, and we're going to throw in Malachi and Paul and Moses as reinforcement to spread the breadth of the Bible. As our basis this morning, we're going to compare a parable that Jesus told in Matthew and excerpts from Jeremiah 30 and 31. So to recap our study of Jeremiah over these past few months, Jeremiah was a prophet that was warning his country of the judgment that was imminent. The nation and its leadership had exchanged worship of God for a culture that approved of sexual immorality, devalued life, a culture that showed withering compassion to the vulnerable, and it grew in skepticism of God. That sounds awfully familiar, even for our day. Jeremiah called for individual and communal repentance, inviting them to turn away from their corrupt and self-focused way of life and return to God, who promised in his mercy for those who return, he would renew the covenant of blessing. So as we open this morning to Matthew 22, which is page 1506 in your pew Bibles, we'll find that Jesus is in his last days before his crucifixion. After being welcomed into Jerusalem with palms and songs, his teaching in the temple courts was challenging the religious leaders. This story is the last of three parables that he tells on this occasion to illustrate the realities of God's kingdom and character in language and pictures that the people of the time could really understand. So pray with me as we dive into the scriptures this morning. Almighty God, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Help us to understand the clear and simple truth that we need your forgiveness more than anything else in this world. Help us also to look into the mirror through these participants in the story see ourselves and trust you more completely than we ever have before. In the name of our Savior Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. If you haven't opened, if you open to Matthew 22, the words will be on the screen, but you can follow along in your Bible if you wish. Let's take a look at this story, the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those whom he had invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. 
but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go into the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. While the setting is a wedding feast, note in verse 2, it starts, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. The king is really the point of this story. He's the main character here. And we really need to camp out on what this story tells us about who the king is. Now, in this story, Jesus is comparing the king to God. So the first thing we see is that the king wants to honor his son. The choice he made here in the story is as a wedding feast. But that's really not the only way that he could have honored his son. If you think about it, he could have erected a monument in the town square to his son that would have been a lasting memorial so that every time people passed by it, they would remember how favored his son was. He could have organized a military parade through the town so that all who were there would hear the sounds of the soldiers marching through and would know the power and might of his son. But he chose a feast a communal celebration of joy and abundance that without others to share it with loses the very essence and nature of a feast. God wants others to participate in the joy and the love he shares with his son and he invites them into this. The other thing to notice here is that the king doesn't use the soldiers to compel these guests to come, although he could do that. Clearly, if we look ahead, this would be a very different story altogether if the king gave the order to his servants in verse 4, the same instruction he gave to his attendants later on in the story. If Think about it for a minute. If the king had said to his servants, if they refuse to come, go tie them hand and feet and sit them down in this wedding hall if they refuse to come, make sure they are here. But that is not the kind of king that Jesus is describing. No, instead, the king with great patience chooses to the second time, reveal more of his generosity, telling his servants to explain what it is that he is offering in order to change their minds, to get them to want to come. Violence against his trusted and valued servants provokes the king's anger and swift retribution of justice. In wisdom, the king states that these first set of guests did not deserve to come. And indeed, that is true. And even the second set of guests, they're no more deserving than the first, but the invitation still goes out. The king welcomes all without distinction into the wedding hall. So with this list of characteristics of the king of God, I want you to listen to this passage from Jeremiah 30, verses 18 through 20. Just listen as you are looking at this set of characteristics and look for the similarities. Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. From them, that is the city and the palace, from them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers and they will not be decreased. I will bring them honor and they will not be disdained. 
Their children will be in it as, as in days of old, and their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near, and he will come close to me. For who is he that will devote himself to be close to me, declares the Lord. So you will be my people, and I will be your God. It is this God of love, this God that welcomes all, that Jeremiah described, that Jesus was describing in this one of his last parables. In the middle of this book of Jeremiah, in the midst of the warnings and the pronouncements of, the, of evil and the judgment to come, is nestled this piece of poetry of peace and reconciliation. I've heard people say, I like the New Testament God, the God of love, but not so much the Old Testament God, the God of judgment, but they are the same God. Hopefully you can hear the voice of God in this passage from Jeremiah, who desires relationship with us, and he draws near to those who draw near to him. And within the New Testament, Jesus doesn't remove the descriptions of God's justice or the relational separation caused by sin. Splitting that time in between Jeremiah and Jesus is Malachi, who writes that he was told, I, the Lord, do not change. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. Going back to the parable in Matthew, let's focus now for a little bit on the other set of people in this story, which are the guests. They fall into two categories, the guests who accept the king's invitation and those who reject it. So initially, back in the time, it was the custom to invite your desired guests to the event once you knew it was going to happen without a date or a time. And then when all the preparations had been made, a final message would go out saying, come. So this story opens with that second invitation to those who were previously invited saying, it is now ready, come. Translated, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is time. This is the same message that Jesus publicly preached when he started preaching in Matthew 4 and preached by John the Baptist when he was out on the riverbanks. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. However, the king's second invitation is met with complete refusal. It's not that the people could not come, it's that they would not come. In his great mercy, the king sends another round of servants. But this result is the same. Many were indifferent to this generous offer extended by the king. The draw of their home or their family or their business or their vocation was too strong and too tangible to allow them to make the king's banquet seem worth their time. They turned their backs and they went back to what they knew. After the farmers and the shepherds went back to their fields and the merchants went back to their businesses and shops, all that would have remained in this group would have been the educated class, the teachers, the judges, the scribes and the religious leaders. It was this group that didn't just reject Jesus or reject the king's offer with indifference. They met it with hostility. They sought to destroy both the message and the messenger. This root of bitterness was met with swift judgment. So let's let that sink in for a minute. 
Is there an invitation that God has extended to you recently that you've been ignoring, that you've been putting aside, that you've been thinking would just wait? Maybe it's an invitation to spend more time with him. Maybe it's the time that you need to pray or spend time reading his word each day, but you just let it sit. Maybe it's an invitation to draw closer in relationship to a friend or to a family member that needs your encouragement and your friendship right now, but you just haven't given it the time. Maybe for some of you, it's an invitation to serve in a way that is completely beyond your comfort zone. It's an opportunity that has come your way that you're just not sure that you can say yes to. Or maybe it's an invitation to trust him with something really big. How is it that you could honor God with your response? I'm, I'm one of the worst ones at responding to invitations. I love receiving them. I get them, I open them up, I set them right there on the counter, I look at them, I even set the date in my calendar. But I often wait until the last week to actually contact the host to RSVP. Let's not do that with God. If he has placed an invitation in your life, respond to it today. Well, the king's invitation received a vastly different kind of response from the people who were out there in the streets. And they responded by coming in and filling the hall with people. Think for a moment about who these people might have been, the people who were making their place on the streets. These would have been prostitutes, thieves, those engaged in shady business enterprises, travelers, foreigners, Homeless people, impoverished people, the disabled, the widows, and the orphans. The streets are home to both good and bad, and both were represented by those in the wedding that came into the wedding hall. Most of the people were already humbled by life, desperate for community, and surprised by the honor of an invitation that they knew they didn't deserve. They were all too glad to wash to enter, to refresh, and to relax, laying the burdens of their life down at the door and celebrate with the king. Let's compare this to the restoration described by Jeremiah in chapter 31, verses 8 and 9. The Lord says, See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, Expectant mothers and women in labor, a great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. In the Bible, streets are so often the setting for shame and disrepute, making the invitation to the people of the street so much more startling that they may now enter the kingdom both good and bad, not through their own merit, but through the undeserved favor and mercy of the king. While we may know intellectually that the gospel is available to everyone, I invite you to take a look at the people you know. Who are you judging as unworthy of, of the gospel? Who do you think is too hardened, too bitter, too bad, or too content with their life to receive Jesus? Why will you not tell them of his great love? It's not you that they may reject, but God, and he can take it. 
be his messenger and go into that situation that may seem bleak and share your experience of God's love. Sometimes it seems scary to to share your faith, but what we each have experienced of God's own love, his faithfulness, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, our loves, our actions, that's something that we can share with anyone we know. Jesus' parable concludes in Matthew uh, 22, verses 11 through 13. We'll finish that out this morning. In the second part of the parable, after everyone has come into the wedding hall, Jesus continues. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. The man in the story thought that he didn't need the wedding clothes that the king had provided him, that his own clothes were sufficient. In fact, no one else seems to have even taken notice or cared what this man was wearing. But the king was able to see him, to see through him, to notice that he had not accepted the wedding clothes that had been so generously offered to him. He didn't realize this man, the extent of the disrespect that he was showing to the king by refusing his gift. When questioned by the king, he had no answer. In Romans 3.19, Paul says that when the law speaks, that every mouth shall be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. The law of Moses that's summarized in the Ten Commandments makes us conscious of how far short of the standard we fall and when we look at our own thoughts and deeds and desires. Paul goes on to tell the Romans that apart from the law, a righteousness from God has been made known. And that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who will believe. Zooming out, the Bible gives us many examples of royalty honoring a guest by giving them one of their own garments. Joseph, who had become second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt, gives his own clothing to each of his brothers when they arrive after a long journey and are reunited as a family. Jonathan, son of Saul, was a prince of Israel. He he honored David by giving him his clothing as a sign of his friendship and favor. King Xerxes of of Persia publicly honored the guard Mordecai. Ah, It's a lot of names there. Publicly honored the guard Mordecai for saving his life by dressing him in the king's robes and parading him through the streets. Secular historians of biblical times record visiting foreigners being deeply honored by receiving a garment that the king had previously worn. The Old Testament speaks many times of Messiah's robe of righteousness, the sinless life, the perfect obedience to the law of Moses, and describes it as pure and clean, shining, radiant, and glorious. In God's kingdom, there is no shadow at all, no sin, no disease, no evil, no self-glorification, only the pure, joyous worship of God, 
the love and selfless union of God the Father with Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit into which we as Christ followers can now participate in this unbroken fellowship. The problem is we have no suitable garment. Isaiah describes that all our good deeds are like filthy rags. Satan, the accuser, stands before us, ready to testify about all of our failings, our selfishness, and our pride. Our lives stand in the way of the harmony for which we were created. Zechariah presents a picture of what happens when we put our faith in the Messiah, Jesus, that God strips away the torn and stained clothing and covers us in a garment of linen. That's the garment Jesus wore, his kingly robe that he has given to us so that we can stand with him in God's kingdom forever. When God looks at us, we who have repented and put our trust in Jesus, he sees not our good works and not our failures, but Christ's righteousness. The idea of this exchange of garments was given to the Israelites before they even entered the promised land. When they had a tabernacle, a tent of worship that they were moving around with them, the priest was commanded to take off his clothing that was worn in the world and put on a white linen garment to come before the Lord. Even then, we have this picture of removing the ordinary and imperfect and putting on that which has been sanctified to be holy. As we respond to Jesus, our lives become sanctified as well. It's a process, day by day, little by little, the Holy Spirit working inside us to make us into the new creature that we are to become in Christ. Have you refused the grace that God has offered you? If you have never repented and put your trust in Jesus, let me be the messenger today to hand you the King's invitation. There is nothing that will bring you more joy or more peace than saying yes to Jesus. Humbly acknowledge that you don't deserve this place at God's table, that you will willingly accept his forgiveness and you want his presence in your life. And then wrap yourself in that beautiful robe that Jesus has prepared for you. As you daily walk more closely with him, the Holy Spirit will change you. It will change your thoughts, your actions, and your words to more and more reflect Christ. Jesus concludes this story with a statement that would have lingered in the ears of his audience. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Many and few in the idiom of the day would have meant all and not all. So all are invited, but not all are chosen. Chosen, in this case, being an adjective describing a state like clean or dirty, not a verb indicating some randomness of blessing on God's part. God doesn't want to force people to come to the banquet, although he does have the power to do so. He wants to share in the joy and celebration of devotion that is freely given. The banquet is open to all, but not all will come. You may hear people say, I could never be a Christian. It's too exclusive. It's too narrow. Saying Jesus is the only way. But in this story, Jesus is telling us that through him, the kingdom of God is wide open to all who will come in sincere and humble faith. It doesn't matter what family you were born into, 
It doesn't matter what job you have, what your color your skin is, what language you speak, whether you're old or young, rich or poor, sick or healthy, good or bad. Jesus in his infinite being has satisfied the consequence for an infinite number of sins, for an infinite number of people throughout all of history. Don't minimize Christ's sacrifice by believing that he's an option for the world. God's son plus his sinless life equals salvation. It's a unique equation. All the other major religions of the world say that the path to heaven or enlightenment or peace is based on a person's own efforts, efforts at selflessness, efforts at pure thoughts, efforts at an altered consciousness. It's do, do, do. But Jesus sits at the place of honor in heaven and says, it is done. Friend, come. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that is so rich in meaning. We know that your kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus spoke of, is incomprehensible to us. Yet you have given us such a great invitation. Search our hearts and give the gift of faith to all who are truly seeking you. Work in our lives to allow us to receive your grace with joy and celebration and live in anticipation of that eternal banquet that honors your son, Jesus. And Lord, when you call us to be your servants and messengers, strengthen us to know that the invitation is yours to give. May your spirit work through us to draw many into your kingdom and protect us from any indifference or rejection that we may experience on your behalf. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.